Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Um, every year around Christmas time, I, I try to work through whether or not to continue our ongoing study of the book we're in, or to pause and, and do a, a message, a text more connected to Christmas. Where I can, in the books we're going through, connect the theme of the text, I'd like to stay in the book, but sometimes that's not possible. I was struggling with finding a way to connect Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees as hirelings with Christmas. You could say shepherd somehow in there, but I thought it better to, uh, to look at one of the texts from actually from last week's cantata, Handel's Messiah. And oh, did I bite off more than I intended to. <laughs> I had a wedding this week. I thought, oh, I'll pick up text in Isaiah. It'll be lovely. You know, and man, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on here. So I'd like to begin by reading Isaiah 1, 9, 1 to 7. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we will begin. It's, it's good that we don't have anything after the service, because, you know, who's to say when the service ends? <sighs> let's, let's read Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal. The Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for grace that you give us eyes to see that this text, 2,500 years old, might shine undimmed with its full glory and brightness. That we might behold your goodness, your promises, your Savior and Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Let me just give you an overview of how we're going to look at this passage. Isaiah is announcing hope. He's announcing hope. And in the first three verses, and I'll give you your blanks right now, a royal hope announced. The royal hope announced. He declares good things are going to happen. And then in four to seven, the royal hope explained how. You'll, you'll notice that starting in verse four, you get four the yoke of his burden. Verse 5, for every boot. Verse 6, for. He's explaining the how. The things that are declared in the first three verses, how will they come to be? Well, we're told in the second half. So it's announced, it's explained. Let's then dive in. We have many miles to go before we sleep. Um, 
it's funny now, isn't it? Um, but, but number point A, what the Lord does, what the Lord does. So if we look at these first three verses, we can look at what the Lord does, what his people enjoy, and then what will follow. What does the Lord do? And it's, it's restoration. It's restoration. To grasp this, we need to see where Isaiah 9 sits in the book. Judgment has just been announced. Most of Isaiah's early ministry is one of judgment. If you remember the passage in Isaiah 6 where he's commissioned and the Lord says, who will go for me? And he says, I will go, send me. The message he's to give is one that will harden and blind and stupefy the people. Keep on seeing, but do not see. Keep on hearing, but do not hear. Most of Isaiah's audience will reject his message. He will announce judgment. He will announce the captivity of Israel. And he's already announced some. Look at the end of chapter 8. The end of chapter 8, starting in verse 19. When you say, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness." The language of light and dawning and hope is the reversal of this judgment. The people have rejected God's word. Isaiah has sent with a message and the people would rather inquire of necromancers and pray to the dead than hear from their God. And so judgment is announced and darkness and gloom. So this initial announcement of of light and glory is the restoration, the reversal of the prior judgment. Reversal of the prior judgment. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. That helps settle who is the her. The people he's just pronounced judgment on. Now this will take many years. There will be a time of judgment. But there will come, he says, and this is common with God when he announces judgment, that judgment will be temporary. Wrath and judgment, as some of the Puritans have said, is God's unusual work. And and tempered with the justice and the judgment is hope and a promise and grace. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You'll notice that Isaiah is speaking in the past tense. This is a common enough Hebrewism. Some have even called it the prophetic perfect The point is this, it is a, to quote a commentator, it is a sure hope. What Isaiah is prophesying is a sure hope. So sure that according to Hebrew idiom, it's written in the past tense as though it had happened already. God doesn't try to do things, he does them. He accomplishes his will. And so when he says this will happen, it is so sure, Isaiah can speak of it in the past tense. It can can be trusted We'll see this morning that God has already kept some of these promises. So, what is this land, Naphtali and Jordan? Well, it's the northern land of Zebulun and Naphtali covering the area west and southwest of the Sea of Galilee. 
And this is the first part of the promised land to fall to Assyria in 733. So when God judged the northern kingdom, the first parts of that land to be taken captive was precisely this. In other words, the logic is that part of the promised land that first received shame and ignominy will be exalted. A restoration, the removal of gloom and darkness. The removal of the judgment of gloom and darkness. Now, In Isaiah's context, and as John's gospel picks this up, the concept of light is the ability to act circumspectly, to act with knowledge. If if you're trying to conduct yourself and walk and live in darkness, you stumble, you fall. Jesus talks about the blind leading the blind, one falling into a pit. So this notion of light is God saying, if you reject my word, if you reject my revelation, you will be lost You will be blind. You will not know how to live your life. Look around us. We see a world where people don't know how to live. They don't understand the most basic things because they've been given over to gloom and darkness. The Lord Jesus, in John's gospel, picking up this theme, writes, or says, John writes, Jesus cried out, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then a little later in chapter 12, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And and John quotes this. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, remember it was in direct answer to the Pharisees saying, does anything good come out of, is there any prophet who comes out of Galilee? The answer is yes, Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, Jesus is that answer. So point two here, the, the initial statement is the glorification or the exaltation of the land that first fell to Assyria. So how, how then is that fulfilled? Well, we'll see as we move on to verse two what the Lord's people will enjoy. So verse one is simply the declaration. This gloom, this darkness, this judgment will not be perpetual. It will last for the former times. Isaiah doesn't say how long those former times will be, but there will be a latter times and things will be different. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. What the Lord's people enjoy, they enjoy light. And again, in the context, it's information. It's the ability to make sense of your life. It's the ability to live and conduct yourself and not fall down. It's the light that comes from God's word and his truth informing explaining, defining life so we can understand like what is marriage and what is gender and what is family and all these things and so many more, the light of God's word gives us the ability to see and understand and and live and act circumspectly. The glorification of the land that fell to Assyria, the Lord's people enjoy light. Now, they had refused Isaiah's prior invitation we saw at the end of chapter 8 is precisely because they didn't want to inquire of God. It was precisely because they'd rather call upon their necromancers than the prophet of God that God has said, okay, if you don't want my light, then have darkness. But even as early as Isaiah chapter 2, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk 
in the light of the Lord. God is inviting you. He's inviting me to walk in the light of his word. Jesus came and he invited people. He warned them, I am light. Walk in the light while you have the light. Whoever believes in me will have the light of life. And ultimately we know, point two here, that this part of this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. We don't need to be left wondering about this. Turn to Matthew 4. Turn to Matthew 4. How do we know this is about Jesus? Well, because Matthew explicitly quotes it and tells us. That's how. Matt, I think we could deduce it and figure it out, but we're, sometimes they tell you the answer in the back of the book, and here is precisely that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the, tori- in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Matthew makes it explicitly clear this part of this prophecy was fulfilled. So understand what that means. The land of Naphtali and Zebulon was shamed by being conquered and annexed by pagan kings, by Syria. The people living there were taken into captivity. They were shamed. But they will be glorified even greater than they had before. How so? Because Jesus would live there. That's how so. That's what Matthew just said. Jesus made his base of operations for a time there. How glorious is our Lord? You put, think of the scales being annexed and taken in conquest in battle. Jesus spends two or three years living and operating. And much heavier in the scales is that the glory that the Lord would live in this backwater region. This is part of why they rejected him. He's from Galilee. Yeah, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Yes, yes. And it was gloried and glorified through Jesus living and operating out of there. So, the Lord promises a restoration. The benefit of that restoration is his people will walk in light. What, what's the consequence? What follows? What comes out of that? And your answer is simple. Joy. Joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. To what effect? They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is just an announcement of joy. I love it. The Lord has multiplied the nation and increased its joy. So you're blank here. The Lord increased the people and their joy. Now, this text is ultimately fulfilled in a national restoration and enlargement of Israel. I I think that's unmistakable. Um, I don't think you can legitimately spiritualize this to the nation of the church or something. Why? Because Zebulun and Naphtali mentioned here are the exact geographic locations where Jesus did, in fact, live and reside. The fulfillment, in other words, of verse 1 and 2 is literal, regional. Therefore, I don't see how legitimately you can shift from Zebulun needs Zebulun, Naphtali needs Naphtali. You've multiplied the nation. That's talking about something else. No, no. The nation in this context is, has one referent. It's Israel. So this is about the future messianic kingdom and age. 
At least it is as we move into verse 3. The Lord increased the people and their joy. And the joy is so great it's compared to two things. It's compared to harvest and military victory. Economic rejoicing, political rejoicing. The joy that comes when you've finished the hard work of bringing in the harvest, when the new wine and the food is there, when you can cease from your labors, when you can rest, the joy celebrated at the Feast of Booths, just an example. And the joy when the battle is over, the victory is won, the swords can be put down, the spoils can be gathered. Those are both great times of national rejoicing. And the Lord's restoration The Lord's light is going to create such joy, it's comparable to those great events. And the people will rejoice before the Lord. And again, this is the biblical pattern. God does the work. God blesses his people. God gives the deliverance. We get the blessing, he gets the praise. He delivers and we rejoice. He is pleased in the joy of his people. This is why we sing when we gather. It pleases our Father that we rejoice before him. And that pattern is seen here as well. So in the first three verses, the Lord's going to restore. The people will enjoy light. And ultimately, they will rejoice before him. How then will God accomplish this? How then will this all come to pass? And verses 4 to 7 then explains, the royal hope explained. So verses 1 to 3 is a macro overview. We know that Jesus' life and ministry in and around Galilee fulfills at least part of this. I think we'll see it doesn't fulfill all of it yet. Not all of it yet. So the royal hope explained. Now these three fours, becauses, explanations, build. They become cumulatively greater. So the first explanation, how, how can God do this? How will this be accomplished? For the Lord has delivered his people. The Lord has delivered his people. And you read verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, Isaiah is bringing to mind through his language two different prior deliverances of God. One's pretty explicit. Midian refers to, um, Midian refers to Gideon's defeat in Judges of the Midianites. But the other part embedded in this with the words such as burden, yoke, shoulder of burden, and oppression is the exodus. This is familiar language describing the, the suffering of Israel in Egypt. Leviticus 26, 13, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect or burdens. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to inflict them with heavy burdens. Exodus 2, 11, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked upon their burdens. Or listen to Psalm 81, 5 and 6. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. So the the picture is of people heavy burdened with work and a yoke and slavery. This deliverance will be of a type with the Exodus, of a type with Gideon's defeat of the Midianites. For the Lord has delivered his people as in the Exodus and as when Gideon defeated the Midianites. So that's verse four. Verse five then explaining further. So this is developing. But how is this going to happen? Well, the enemy is going to be defeated. That's how. 
Like, like God defeated Pharaoh and his army in Exodus. Like God defeated the far greater army of the Midianites by a small band led by Gideon. Verse 5, for every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. And we get to the next four. For the Lord's people enjoy the fruits of victory. And now what's described is the effect the effect because the enemy will be defeated every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire notice the comprehensiveness all enemy weapons and armaments will be destroyed the boots the clothes all of it this is an utter defeat and not just a defeat but the removal of the enemy implied is the enemy the people wearing the boots are gone when you, when you throw the boots away and you burn the clothes, you can assume the people who wore them are already vanquished and taken care of. This is total defeat. This is total defeat. All enemy weapons and armaments will be destroyed. They will enjoy a victory in which they did not participate. They will enjoy a victory in which they will not, they will not participate. They did not participate. This is something God is accomplishing. There are times where God leads his people to battle and to victory, where they bear the sword, where they battle. In Israel's history, that has happened. But here what's described is a victory that God accomplishes, and his people just enjoy the fruits of that victory, which then, of course, raises the question, how? How, How will such a victory be won, such that, like in the Exodus, The enemy is defeated. Like with Gideon and the Midianites, the enemy is confounded and destroyed. How will it be that the people will so have their enemy vanquished that all of their clothes and boots can be burned in fire? Every trace of them removed. How? How will God do that? We get to the final four, and it's it's amazing. Because there's going to be a child who's born. That's how. That's the answer. Now, there's more unpacking that answer, but that's it. There's a child who's being born. So so get the flow of the fours. Four, the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Four, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Four, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now, the rest of these verses have to do with explaining who this Son, this child is. God's solution to the dilemma of his people's suffering, the oppression of the wicked, is he sends a son. He sends a child who is born. That's what we're celebrating and remembering at this time of the year. It it reminds me of Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2? The nations gather and they take their counsel together. The kings of the earth plot and they want to throw the Lord's yoke off of them. He who's in heaven laughs. He holds them in utter derision. What's God's response to a transnational global conspiracy to oppose him? I've set my king on Zion. That, that's, that's God's counter move, and it's checkmate. It's checkmate. Same thing here. How will all this be accomplished? I'm going to send a child. And that gives you, in part, the connection with Gideon. The whole point of the deliverance with the Midianites is such a tiny, small band, such an apparently small force overthrows the Midianites. A slave people defeat the mightiest empire on the earth at that time with Egypt. God sends a child. For, here's your blank, the Lord has sent to us one who is his warrior king. 
The Lord has sent to us one who is his warrior king. Now, the text focuses on the child. And I think the reason is to set that contrast up. Something that appears small, that appears weak, that appears inconsequential, is the vehicle through which the Lord will work his deliverance. Obviously, this child doesn't stay a child. But the emphasis here is on the contrast with the looming threat of Syria and Babylon behind them and then the Medo-Persians behind them and the Greeks behind them with Alexander the Great and the Romans behind them and so on. What will the Lord do to resolve, defeat, destroy, give light to his people, bring joy to them? He's sending a child to be born. That, that's what. It's just a very special child. All that here in Isaiah 9. Let's, let's read. First, this son who is to be born, quite evidently, is the king of Israel. This son who is to be born is the king of Israel. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. So this is the coming Messiah. This is the Davidic king. This is one who sits on the throne of David. If I could connect some texts, this is the one who will be the fulfillment of Psalm 2, who all the kings of the earth are warned, do homage to the son lest he become angry, rejoice and tremble, kiss the son lest he strike you with his rod of iron and dash you like a potter's vessel. This is him. Unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. And then we get to a fourfold declaration of the son's name. Um, what the ESV has here is, um, hold on, what the ESV here has, uh, his name shall be called. Literally, one will call his name, and then you're given four names. And remember in Hebrew, names speak of your character, of your person. That's one of the reasons why names change at significant points in people's lives, at times of covenant making. Your name reflects something of your character. So this fourfold name of this child, this son, tells us about who he is. And what is astonishing in Isaiah's account is this boy's name reveals somehow that he is God in the flesh. This is a remarkable, and that's an understatement, child. Let's look through these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, before I go any further, actually, one other connection. Notice the, the repetition of shoulder. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Only when the Messiah takes rule upon his shoulder is the burden on his people's shoulder lifted. That's an interesting connection here. So let's go through these four names. These four names. And they each tell us something about who this Son, this child is through whom God will affect this redemption, this restoration, this victory, this light, this rejoicing. First, he's called wonderful counselor. And here I think we see his qualifications, his qualifications for rule. 
Wonderful counselor, I think, has it a little off. A better translation might be counselor of wonders. Counselor of wonders. And a counselor is someone who helps direct or lead the king. It can be the king himself, or it can be those who are around him. But in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 26, we read, I will restore your judges as at first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Counselors put in there with judges right? Um, And so this child, this boy, this Davidic king will be a counselor of wonders. Turn turn chapter 2 over to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Where, and and this, the development of this theme of this coming Messiah, this coming shoot or root from Jesse, from David, is developed through Isaiah. And we see a more fleshing out of how it is that this one will be a counselor of wonders, how this one will have such wisdom. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father. So we're talking about the Davidite. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge. In the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. There's that connection to Psalm 2 9. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I'll pause. We've, we've covered this numerous times, but I'll ask you again. Dave Lample did this when he stood in the gap for me a few weeks ago. What does Messiah mean? What's Messiah mean? Anointed. Messiah is the transliteration of the Hebrew Messiah. In Greek, it would be Christos. And in English, it's anointed. The one who is anointed. Well, with what is the Messiah anointed? The Spirit of the Lord. This is why the Gospels begin with Jesus' ministry at his baptism when he receives the Holy Spirit. It's when he's anointed. And here, the significance of that anointing is that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him and the Spirit of the Lord gives him the wisdom to render these judgments, to, to be righteous in what he does. That's what makes the Messiah the anointed one. So of course, then, if this child, this boy, is the Messiah, then he will be anointed by God's Spirit and he will be adequately, competently fit to rule. So his qualifications, he'll be a counselor of wonders. This is consistent with God's character, Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Okay, wonderful counselor. Second name, is mighty God. Here, we see his person and power. Now, I'm not sure how fleshed out Isaiah's Messiah doctrine is, whether or not Isaiah fully comprehended this one who's coming will be God in the flesh. But the fact that he's going to receive the name mighty God, that's, that's one of the ways he'll be referred to. That's one of his titles. He is the mighty God. We know how jealous the Jews were for the name of the Lord. We know how jealous they were lest they appear to be crediting anything else. So at the very least, it's put on the table, who is this one who will be called 
mighty God. Well, the New Testament makes it perfectly clear he'll be called mighty God because he's mighty God. The Gospels make that explicitly clear. So at the very least, it's, it's put on the table and it's, it minimally it's a head scratcher. How, how can a child who is born, so someone who's clearly a human, be called mighty God from the Lord God who does not share his glory? We know, we can pl- plug it together. We know it's because he's God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. But again, for those who are dealing with some of the cults that deny the deity of Christ, you can ask them, how can it be that the one who is promised will be called mighty God? Turn to Isaiah 10, 21. This is clearly a title for Yahweh, the Lord. 10, 20, and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Is there any doubt who that's referring to? This child will be called that as well. That's one of the names by which he'll be called. People without blaspheming with the Lord's joy and blessing, will refer to this child, and they will say that he is the mighty God. That's in Isaiah 9. His person and his power. And of course, in John 20, Thomas falls down at Jesus' feet and says, my Lord and my God. In our passage that we've paused studying, the, the blind man who was healed, Jesus will reveal who he is and he will worship him. Jesus is the mighty God. That's who this son this child is and then we get to the title that honestly had me the most confounded before i began to study this everlasting father i don't know if you've ever wondered about that we're singing it you know wonderful counselor the mighty god yeah that's the reason why i didn't do that solo okay um the everlasting father how does that work how how can jesus is god the son he's not god the father how does that work It's really not that that complicated. Um, I'm importing my Trinitarian categories in. John's gospel, um, all the gospels, John's gospel probably more than the others, really emphasizes the fatherness of the father, the sonness of the son. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing. The the son loves the father. And Jesus is constantly related to his father. So we're so used to thinking of the persons who exist in the one God as the father, the son, the Holy Spirit, that we read it back here. But In this context, the notion of a king being a father is a pretty common notion. Turn to Isaiah um, 22. In other words, I don't think we're using like technical categories. He will be a father to his people. And the notion of a king fathering his people is a pretty common Old Testament notion. We see it here in Isaiah 22, 21. Isaiah 22, 20 and 21. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Joseph himself in Genesis 45, 8, describing how the Lord raised him up as a counselor to help Pharaoh, said, It was not you who sent me, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh 
And Job, speaking of his faithfulness to the Lord, says in Job 29, 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I think that's all that's in view here. We have a king who's full of wisdom. His counsels are wondrous. We have a king who is the mighty God. Well, that might be terrifying to have such a king. Oh, but he'll also be a father to his people. He will care for them as a father cares for his own, as a father provides them, just as I head my household. So this king heads Israel and his people, and he cares for them. So your blank here then is his care for his subjects, his care for his subjects. He has the wisdom to rule. He has the might to rule. And he has the compassionate care for his people that you want a king like this to rule. Finally, Prince of Peace. We see here the society he creates. The society he creates. What, what will be the tone and tenor of his rule? We know through human history that certain kings and rulers can have periods of terror in their wake. Wondering who will be killed next. Wondering who will be brought before a kangaroo court next. No, no, this king, mighty God, wonderful in counsel, a father to his people, his reign is characterized by peace. Remember, after all, the foe has been utterly destroyed, their boots, their clothes burned up, people rejoicing, the nation increasing. No, this is a prince of peace. The society he creates is one of peace. Turn to Psalm 2. I keep referencing Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 really um, brings together a bunch of messianic themes. Psalm 2 reveals to us clearly that the, the coming Messiah is also a coming son, is also a coming king. All three threads, Messiah, the anointed, son, and king are one person. I was going to read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Is God threatened by this? Is God concerned? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's his counter move. And that'll be sufficient. That'll take care of it. Then the, the, the vantage point shifts to the king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this one who is the Lord's anointed, who is the one installed as the king, is also the son Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Three times in the book of Revelation, that imagery is picked up with the second coming. What's the, what's the conclusion then to these rebellious kings of the earth? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now he will defeat his foes. And on the other side of that victory, there will be peace. A peace that does not end. Notice the emphatic language of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This, of course, corresponds with verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased their joy. The nation is increasing. Their joy is increasing. And then here in verse 7, his government and peace is increasing. They, they, They correspond. The people are, of course, rejoicing in their borders growing. They're rejoicing in the peace, the ceasing of warfare that will take place. He is a prince of peace, which then brings us finally. He will reign on David's throne forever. He will reign on David's throne forever. Now, this, of course, has not yet happened. That we live in a time where there is striving and war and rumors of war and enemies to be defeated and gloom darkness and we are now living 2500 years later than when Isaiah first promised this now we know parts of this were fulfilled in the Lord's first coming Matthew makes it explicit when Jesus heard John was arrested and he relocated to Capernaum that was to fulfill what was written that was the exaltation of Naphtali and Zebulun Galilee of the nations the light of Christ there more than outweighed its prior shame and glory but how, how sure can we be that this promise will be kept? How sure can we be that these things will be fulfilled? Well, we get at the end, verse 7, the absolute surety. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's plan, his salvation, his warrior king, his son, his mighty counselor, his prince of peace. This is his plan, and God is filled with zeal and jealousy that this should happen, and so we can take it to the bank. We can take it to the bank. Turn, turn to Acts chapter 1. The zeal of the Lord of hosts ensures this promise. I, I'd have you remember this Christmas Eve and this Christmas morning. I'd have you remember that... Jesus, in his first coming, defeated sin and death on the cross. He died for our sins. He took our iniquity. He took the wrath we deserved. The punishment that we deserve fell on his shoulders. And all who look to him in faith, all who turn and trust in him, receive his light, his forgiveness, his life. But Jesus has only begun to accomplish his father's work. He has only begun to save his people. There'll be no more saving from sin. But look at how Acts chapter 1 begins. Acts, of course, is the sequel to Luke. And Luke, in writing his sequel, addresses Theophilus again. And he says it this way, so casual. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. Jesus began to do some things in the gospel. And if the Gospels recount what Jesus began to do, what will the fulfillment of that look like? 
when he completes his father's program and purpose. I can tell you what it looks like. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. The the completion of this prophecy will not happen until the words of Revelation 19 are fulfilled. Jesus began. He began. And oh, what a beginning it was. But he is not done. His father still has work for him to do. No more work in bearing sin. No more work as a suffering, humbled Messiah. Now the king came in his first coming in humility. He comes again in glory. Revelation 19, and then we'll sing our closing song. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, just like Psalm 2.7 said. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, just like Isaiah 63 says. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the child who is born. This is the son who was given to us. And so I would invite you this Christmas morn to bow your knee to the one who is born King of the Jews, to bow your knee to the one through whom God will work and will complete his entire plan of redemption, the one who will defeat the foe and make all things right, or choose to remain his foe and be destroyed by this child and king. There will only be his people and the vanquished foe who the very remnants and remembrances of will be gathered up and thrown in the fire. But God has sent his son and called, called us. I'll close with Jesus' own appeal. Jesus cried out and said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now we await his return.